Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion. We are joined by Alyssa Phillips, an occupational therapist who has spent a large majority of her clinical practice and research on how patients perceive pain and the relationship between psychological factors and pain. On this episode, she shares with us the importance of recognizing how psychological factors can have an effect on our patient's recovery and strategies for maximizing our patient's functional outcomes while addressing their pain. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Alyssa. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining us on Hands in Motion. We're excited to have you this evening. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is my first podcast, so I'm very excited to be here. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, and then we'll jump in. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Alyssa. I'm an occupational therapist, and I'm currently working at Pacific University as an assistant professor. I primarily handle anatomy and kinesiology content and some adult physical disabilities. My background as an OT, I've had the problem of loving clinical practice in a lot of places. <laughs> so I've worked in predominantly upper extremity rehab with a focus in chronic pain management and also in industrial rehab, some neurological conditions and in pediatrics. So it's a bit of everything, but was primarily in rural practice and underserved urban areas. So seeing a little bit of everything came with the territory. Great. Well, I had the pleasure of listening to your presentation. So for those of you listening to this podcast, Alyssa presented at our recent ASHT annual meeting in San Antonio, which you can listen to on demand. And I would highly recommend that along with this podcast. But all that to say, Alyssa, you just recently presented on the connection between our patients who are in pain and the psychological components that go along with that. And so I thought that this would be a really nice topic to have a conversation about. So why don't you give us kind of a brief intro? Don't give all of your secrets away just yet. We'll get into that, but give us a brief intro of even how you came to even just present on this topic. Yeah. So my interest in pain and the relationship between pain and psychosocial factors goes back to my undergraduate degree. So I went to an OT program, St. Francis University, that was a five-year program. And in undergrad, we had the opportunity to get a psychology degree as well. So I was like, yeah, I had initially when I was a kid wanted to be a psychologist and then found OT and felt like that better aligned with what I wanted to do. But I've always had this interest in how people think, how the brain works and how that affects what we do in our day-to-day lives. So starting at St. Francis, interested in psychology. And then as I got into practice and was seeing individuals in the upper extremity setting, realized that how they felt about what had happened to them and how they felt about what they were doing really impacted the outcomes, right? If they were really upset about what had happened to them, it impacted rehab, right? It's not fun to come in and be asked to work on things and be asked to do repetitions and be asked to do different exercises when we don't love what's happened to us. 
And on the other side of things, people weren't able to do what they wanted to do in their daily life. It was greatly impacting their pain, greatly impacting their outcomes and their participation in rehab itself. Yeah. So I would say my interest started back in the day when I was at St. Francis and then continued when I was in practice and kind of seeing this relationship between how people were doing, what they wanted to be doing and how much pain they were experiencing set me up nicely to start working in pain management and then later to do more research and more work through a doctoral program about adolescent pain management and how pain can impact the life of an adolescent and in practice, how pain impacted people throughout their lifespan. That's kind of how I got there. It's a long winding road. And now even today, having had clinical practice, looking for opportunities to practice clinically, even in the academic setting, I'm still interested in how pain works and how the brain works and how the way people feel shapes what they're able to do and how they feel about doing it. So one of the things that you first started with in your presentation was talking about and introducing the biopsychosocial model. And how do we as upper extremity therapists, we obviously are seeing patients who have sustained injuries or had surgery or whatever, and they're coming to us and they have pain and it could be recent. It could be chronic. There's the vast myriad of this. How do we as upper extremity therapists approach this and be mindful of this as we are working with our clients? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a big question, but it's a great question. (laughs) Yeah, I think in upper extremity rehab, there's this luxury, right? We see people come to us at their most vulnerable, in the most pain, sometimes in the first time they've ever had something bad happen to them that's resulted in an injury or a reason for upper extremity rehabilitation. So people are bringing a lot with them when they come to therapy. And I've always looked at it as a gift, right? We have this unique opportunity to accept what people are coming in with and get to know them in the sense of what they want to do, why they want to do it, and how this has impacted them. So I think we do approach from a biopsychosocial model of care, meaning we're looking at the biological things like the injury itself. We're looking at the social context, like what kind of support someone has at home. And we're looking at their psychological well-being, right? How do they feel about their injury? How do they feel about getting back to work, getting back into their leisure activities, getting back into daily life? So I do think we come from a biopsychosocial model of care. And that being said, the way we approach it really should be about the whole person, which includes how they're feeling and includes what they want to be able to do, what they need to be able to do, or what they're expected to do. Yeah. So it's this really beautiful intersection of people are coming to us because they want to get better. They're coming to us because they need to do these things in their daily life. And we have the opportunity to take everything they're bringing in and shape that into an intervention, shape that into a program, support them as they achieve some of those outcomes and get back to what they want to be doing. So especially with traumatic injuries, I find one of two ways, either they come in And the injury really doesn't bother them at all. They just kind of move forward with life. And then the other one where it almost consumes everything that they do. Some are very easily able to speak about the emotional part of it and the psychosocial part of it. And some just, maybe it's denial. I don't know. Like, But some just move forward and say, eh, that is what it is. But to me, as a therapist, those injuries are impacting, like you said, every aspect of their life. So how do you get past that point where 
you find a happy medium or the balance between being completely consumed by the injury psychosocially or not at all. It's interesting, right? Because some people come to us and they have resilience, which is a skill, right? That they've had the opportunity to learn, to practice over their lifespan. And some people come to us needing to develop that skill and some of that resiliency. That being said, I think it starts with how we receive it. I kind of compare it for students like you're at a party and you can either be the person who receives the gift at the door and says, thank you so much for sharing this with me. This is really important and I value your gift. Or you can be the person who says, hey, put it on the table with the rest. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. So I think it starts with how we receive it as therapists. That's a good point, right? How do you find that happy medium between people are experiencing so much that they want to focus on what they're experiencing versus what the intervention plan is, what you want to be working on in rehab, those kinds of things. And I think some skills we talked about in the course and some skills that I definitely use, ensuring that people have heard me, right? Active listening skills that we practice in our professional programs, active listening skills that we practice in our lives, letting people know that you hear them. And that reduces that pressure for them to feel like they need to continue to tell you each detail because they're now getting that acknowledgement that you've heard them, you're understanding what they're saying and making it a part of the intervention can be really powerful, right? Like I hear that you're afraid to go back to work because you have had this traumatic injury with a table saw, sheet metal, you know, some of these things we see in industry and saying, I hear that you're anxious. I understand that you have gone through so much and in doing what we're planning in this intervention, we're working towards your goal of feeling comfortable going back to work, safely getting back to work. I tend to try to reframe things in the sense of I'm here to support them and get them to that goal of what they want to do or what they're maybe anxious to do again or fearful of doing again or depressed about not being able to do. But also the beauty of what we do in Upper Extremity Rehab is we have the art of doing on our side. So often when people come to me and they say, oh, I'm really afraid to get back to moving my wrist after a really bad fracture. I'm like, okay, well, we can start with something gentle. Try it out first. We can let them show us what they can do passively with their own hands, their own body first, and kind of build up some of that comfort and confidence and then take it to the next step. So yeah, I think a couple of my strategies include definitely using active listening and letting them know that they are heard and that what they're telling me is getting put directly into their intervention plan or and or taking what they're saying as an opportunity for them to explore it a little bit independently or on their own or with some guidance and then moving into more of that hands-on approach where I am then doing the passive range of motion or I am then instructing on the activity. And giving choice can be helpful. There's like an easy thing to do today, a medium thing to do today, and a hard thing to do today because... I have days where I want to do what's easy and still meet my goals. And I have days that I want to challenge myself and do what's hard and still meet my goals. So Alyssa, kind of to piggyback on that of when you have a patient that you're working with and trying to find that happy medium, what about the patient that maybe you aren't the first person that they've seen and they might come in with already ideas about I've tried X, Y, Z, or this didn't work or this worked. How do you work with that patient or where do you begin with that in knowing that you aren't the first therapist, medical professional, whomever that they have seen? 
Yeah, it's hard to hear those things and not put any one of your professional counterparts or colleagues under the bus, right? It's hard when someone has seen a variety of medical providers and has experienced a lot of approaches that may have been appropriate for the injury, but not necessarily the person, or we're just missing the mark. So I start in the evaluation and I I ask, I say, oh, who have you seen before for this injury? And they can list out, oh, I've seen the surgeon, I've seen a PA, I've seen a physical therapist, I've seen an occupational therapist, I've seen so-and-so. So I give them the opportunity to let me know who they've seen. And then I explicitly ask, what have you tried before and what's worked well? What have you tried before that has not worked well and you'd never try again? Because if someone tells me ice feels awful and then I'm like, hey, I've heard you, but we're going to start the session with some ice and just chat while you're on your TENS unit, (laughs) that's not really going to gain me any ground, right? So I do, I explicitly ask in the evaluation who you've seen, what strategies have worked for you related to your pain or scar management or whatever we're working with that day and what strategies have not worked. And then that kind of opens the door to some things like, heat, for example, right? I've had people who were like, oh, I use moist heat and it's awful. But then you find out that they're using moist heat for hours at a time, or they're using a modality and intervention, something in a way that may not be safe, may not be meeting their goals. So it also allows you that opportunity to have some conversations surrounding safety and surrounding just how self-management can look a little different than what they've tried in the past. I think that's a good reminder to us too, as therapists is to listen to what our patients tell us that they have tried, haven't tried, what worked, what didn't work. Because sometimes we come in with, oh, I know that this is what you've got going on. And I know this is for my training and for my literature research or or whatever, or what I've seen work before, this is going to work. But if that is the complete opposite of what that patient they've tried and it didn't work before or whatever. And we are so driven on, yes, we're going to do this. That can put us back so far. And so I think that's an important reminder to us as clinicians to listen to what our patients have tried. And sometimes they can help guide our treatments as well. Yeah. Or maybe it doesn't align with something that you do in practice, but isn't harmful either. Like I've had people tell me, oh, this is going to sound like a silly example, but if I rub my head, my arm pain feels better. Great. Continue to do that. It's not harmful. It is not going to cause any problems. <laughs> if we start to develop a bald spot, we'll talk. But <laughs> sometimes people come to the table with things that have helped them. And it's not my business to decide whether it's a placebo effect or not. If it's working, it's working. Within the understanding that obviously if it's unsafe, we're going to halt that behavior, or if it's unsafe, we're going to halt that home program. Yeah, we do listen to our patients in regards to pain. At what point do you kind of have to change your treatment plan or do you have a suggestions as far as modifying a plan when the patient has so much pain, whether it's real or not real, to them, it's real pain. So we have to respect that. But how do you get someone to move forward to get past the pain to be able to make functional gains? Yeah, that's a good point, right? Because pain is so subjective. I can never feel or explicitly understand someone else's pain because it's just so different body to body, right? Our environment impacts pain, our culture impacts pain, impacts pain, our biology impacts it. There's so many factors that go into someone else's pain. I will never fully comprehend someone else's pain as well as they do. 
I often will go to the conversation of flare planning. So if someone's coming into me and they're telling me, oh, you know, I did these active range of motion exercises, or I did this thing at home and it wasn't working. I start the conversation about flare planning, right? That's within our scope of practice to talk people through your experience of pain flare, whether it's acute or chronic pain flares are normal. They're a part of the healing process. They can be a part of the chronic pain process. And let's talk about some of these things you've shared with me that work when you're in a high level of pain, some of these things that do not work for you when you're in a high level of pain or within this pain flare. And I try to really bring self-management up, right? Like they are in this body every day. They have this opportunity to try these strategies, do these activities to help manage their pain. And then that conversation can either go one of two ways, right? It goes in the way that we have found some strategies and we can continue with our intervention today, or it can go in the way of, yeah, I just feel like this is not going to work for me today. (laughs) And I'm just feeling a lot of pain. So I really do. I try to start with that productive, like, let's talk about the flare plan and let's talk about how you manage your pain to really get at self-management. And then again, I'm big on choice. I like to offer choices, right? You can stay here in this session and we can do these things, or you can choose from these things, or maybe it's just not the right day. I know people don't love to hear that, but if somebody truly doesn't want to participate, I gain more confidence out of a client when I say, it is okay if today's not the right day, let's reschedule versus having them participate in a variety of activities that they don't want to do. That being said, it doesn't always work, right? There's insurance companies that need to see a certain amount of visits like comp. There's different parameters surrounding like insurance and billing. But yeah, I think a good place to start is flare planning and just bringing up that concept of I'm hearing that you're in a lot of pain. I want to help you find strategies to better manage it. And we can talk about some of these other things. So it helps them get to those goals eventually by letting them be a part of the process of how they're managing their pain and the way they're doing it. And that they're managing it at home. Sometimes they don't know that they have the power to manage pain at home. They perceive the therapist as the person who who can do it for them. Whereas we don't do therapy to people. We do therapy with people and we work on goals with people. So sometimes changing that mindset as well can be helpful. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the insurance reimbursement visits. We are all aware that many times our visits are numbered and it's getting fewer and fewer that we're able to see patients or even just that they're able to come to or whatever circumstances we might be seeing our patients less and less. How do we as therapists maximize our time with these patients to get them to achieve these functional goals when our visits are getting fewer and far between? Yeah, right. Because pain management sometimes falls to the bottom of the list and not because it's not important, but just because when we're looking at documentation and we're looking at what a person has done in a session as the productivity and to justify to insurance companies that we are doing a skilled service that should get paid for, pain management can fall to the bottom of the list, which is really hard because it's a barrier to participation. So we really want to manage it up front. In education, we call it a flipped classroom model. In practice, it looks like giving them that snippet or that like taste of a certain strategy or an intervention or education, and then having them explore that on their own. I jokingly will assign people homework in the sense that their home activity program or their home exercise program is not 
always repetitions, exercise, et cetera, but it can be doing research on diaphragmatic breathing. And potentially we practice that in session while they're on a modality, right? I'm kind of getting two birds with one stone that we're practicing diaphragmatic breathing while they're warming up with heat, or maybe they're on like the arm bike to warm up and we're just practicing those nice deep breaths. Their home activity is then to go into that and look into more about deep breathing and how that can help with pain management and report back to me what they learned, how it worked, did they try it? So I do admittedly put more on the home activity program than I do in the session at times, just to make sure that a person is still engaged, still working on things outside of the session. But yeah, I mean, limited visits is a concern. And I think having that conversation about our role and that the goal is self-management. I used to work with a PT who would often tell people, funny but true, I'm not there with you at 3 a.m. when your back hurts. I'm not there with you at 3 a.m. when your shoulder hurts. My goal as a physical therapist, our goals as occupational therapists, is to make sure that when you wake up at 3 in the morning with shoulder pain, you know what to do. So I try to get that self-management mindset started early. I try to really explain my role is here to support and help someone know what to do at 3 in the morning when they have pain and give them some of those strategies to research and try on their own time so that in the clinic, I can continue to do things that I need to be there for, right? Because some pieces of intervention we want to be there for, for safety, for increasing weights, reps, et cetera. Yeah. So I give a lot of homework. I agree with your PT colleague. I will tell my patients that, I mean, think about when you make an orthosis, I tell my patients, look, I need to make sure that you know how to put this on because I'm not going home with you. And I think that's the same thing with patients who are in chronic pain or not even chronic, but just in pain. But what happens when you're there alone by yourself or with your significant other, whomever's at home with you, I'm not there to help you through this. So I need to give you the tools to get you through that. Yeah. And maximizing time. Like, can you do deep breathing when you're doing range of motion? Absolutely. It's really effective and helpful. Can you work on progressive muscle relaxation or other mindfulness and meditation techniques that we're seeing more of in the literature in addition to a functional activity, therapeutic exercise, et cetera? Absolutely. So yeah, definitely giving them the tools and the strategies and maximizing your time by combining what reasonably combined can be helpful. Yeah. Sometimes I compartmentalize, like I'm working on this exercise and then I go to this one, but you're right. Like include other strategies while you're working on regaining range of motion, thinking through deep breathing or some of the thought imagined movements or whatnot throughout some of your other interventions as well. Yeah. I'm all about getting two birds with one stone. Absolutely. What do you prioritize in your evaluation for a patient that maybe the referral is for chronic pain or that that is the number one thing that a patient is coming to you for is pain, whether that's the diagnosis on the script or the first thing they say to you is I hurt. What do you prioritize in your evaluation? Yeah. So I prioritize patient reported measures. I prioritize the conversation of what do you wish you were doing? And I prioritize the conversation of what has worked and what has not worked. And the reason being, I love range of motion, manual muscle testing, 
dynamometry, all of these measures, pickup tests, right? All of these standardized assessments and measures that we have that can be really great functional measures. However, range of motion might vary on how someone's feeling in that day. Manual muscle testing might vary based on how someone's feeling in that day. So I really try to prioritize that conversation of what people want to be doing because it gives me my goals. It gives me what intrinsically is going to motivate them, right? So if I'm working on activities that are getting them towards what they want to be doing, it's going to be so much more motivating for them to participate in. And I'm also prioritizing the discussion surrounding like, what are your supports? Because it is hard to go it alone in this life, especially with pain. And knowing what support someone has at home can make a really big difference in the way that I plan interventions, right? Fatigue is real. So a client who maybe has no resources and is the primary provider for their family, I might start at a different place and upfront work much more on flare planning and just kind of get them to a baseline where they feel like they can function within the area they need to function in versus someone who has a beautiful support system and a ton of people at home and is not the primary provider in their home. I may switch up how I do the intervention just to address some of these activities first versus going into this conversation about flare planning, et cetera. My priorities when I come to the evaluation, what does the person want to be able to do? Patient reported measures to see where they think that their function is at and where their function is at. And also looking at what has and what has not worked. There's some interesting research coming out now about affordances or what people perceive that they can do. And in individuals who've experienced chronic pain for a long time, they tend to have a perception that they can do less, whether or not that's functionally true. So I want to know what they want to do. I want to know what they need to do, but I also want to know what they think that they can do to start opening up that door and helping them see that, okay, we can work on this safely in the clinic and then you can try doing it at home. We can work on this safely in the clinic and we can try doing it at home. Because again, standardized measures are great, right? Range of motion, manual muscle testing, dynamometry, pickup tests, the quick dash I love because it has very functional activities listed that the person gets to select whether or not they're doing. But I really try to prioritize what they're doing and what they think that they can do and what they think is being limited due to their pain. So I want to shift a little. As a pediatric hand therapist, and I know you've worked with kids as well, What are some of your strategies for working with pediatric patients, teenagers who we know there's so many other aspects that come when treating teenagers and kids with raging hormones and parents are involved and all the things that come with working with pediatric clients? What are some of your strategies for working with those patients? Yeah. Angst is real. (laughs) Angst is so real in our teen clients. And I often encourage the family to be on board, right? Because if we have buy-in from the family, it's a supported strategy, right? Mom and dad or primary caregivers, grandparents are going to reinforce these strategies at home. Yeah. I think just allowing space for angst. I talked a little bit about at ASHT as well is there's a lot going on in the world of a teenager and children too. I mean, they don't have a lot of control over what they do in a day, right? They're in school systems, their caregivers are telling them what to do, when to do it and how to do it. So allowing space for some of that angst in the session and often 
just demonstrating that I am again, I'm hearing them not in relationship to pain. We obviously always listen when people are talking about pain, but taking notes, like so-and-so has talked a lot about drama going on in the lunchroom, letting them know, like, I heard you last time. And Hey, how did that go? How did that work out? Or kind of tie it to what they're learning. I use the example. I had a teen who had had her hand slammed in a car door and we often talked about high school biology class. She was talking about the integumentary system. So we were talking a little bit about bruises. How do they reabsorb? Like, why are things painful? How do they hurt? So some of my strategies include bringing it into something relevant, right? She has to take high school biology. Now she has this like connection to it that didn't exist before. Some of it is allowing space for that angst in the sense that they can vent while they're doing an activity. I can be engaged in that conversation. I'm not gossiping about any children out there, but if someone wants to tell me what happened in math class, I'm receptive to hearing that. And even for your younger ones, I always come back to allowing choice because they don't get a lot of choice in their day-to-day life related to school, related to what they need to do. But even just simple choice and therapy, like we have to work on your wrist range of motion. We can do it with this or we can do it with that. And just letting them feel like they have some power, some say, and some autonomy within their own treatment plan can really win some respect from children, especially teenagers, because then you're cool because you're not the parent. You're kind of an authority figure, but you're giving them choice and you're letting them talk to you. So you become a little cooler in their eyes. And um, I don't know how much longer that's going to last for me, but right now I'm still somewhat cool. (laughs) I think I'm out of the cool stage. (laughs) How do you handle situations maybe where the family isn't on board, or maybe the family is a bit of a roadblock for your interventions or for the progress of your patient? Yeah, that is a tough one, right? Because a lot of what I talk about in pain management tends to get branded, right? Mindfulness gets branded as some imaginary thing in circles. And yeah, what do you do when a parent is like, I don't think what you're doing is correct? Or what do you do when they don't want to be involved or they're not really interested or they feel like it's a burden for a home program to be involving the family. I try to step back because psychosocial factors include our environment, include our social context. So I try to step back and take a look at what does that family value? And from that lens of what they value, try to communicate what I'm communicating So for example, I worked with a teen once who had fallen in gym class and developed this interesting pain syndrome surrounding a combination of things, right? A combination of not feeling confident in gym class, not being a very coordinated person. This pain had come from their belief in how they participate in gym, who they are as a person. They didn't really value physical activity. And their parents weren't as interested in dissecting that and talking about why pain can feel worse or how we perceive pain. However, they took a camping trip every year. And part of that was walking around this lake. They would go fishing. Dad was really into fishing, loved to share that occupation with his son. And so that stepping back and looking, okay, my focus as the therapist is talking about pain, the brain, the body and perception and how all of that is intersecting. Dad just wants to go on a fishing trip with son. So knowing that that was the value and my value was different, I went through that lens of the value of wanting to go on a fishing trip and wanting it to be successful. 
and getting the buy-in there and saying, these are the strategies that I am giving you. This is how it is going to explicitly help in that activity, right? So maybe we're talking about imagined movement and mindfulness and diaphragmatic breathing or pacing, but talking about it in the context of that valued activity of fishing so that there was some immediate buy-in. When the family is not on board for any variety of reasons, I often have to step back and ask myself, what does the family value and how can I communicate what would be a good outcome and what would help get us to a good outcome through the lens of what they value versus what I value? Because really therapy isn't about me. It's about them. Even if I love to talk about the things I love to talk about. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. It isn't about us. It is about our patient and their family. And I think you bringing up the family values and it, it is a little bit more complex when working with children because they aren't bringing themselves. Someone's having to bring them and they aren't caring for themselves. Someone else is cooking their meals, whatever the tasks are. And so it does become almost a family diagnosis that in this family unit, everyone's affected. Even sometimes I've seen it with the siblings are then affected by this as well because they're having to get out of school early to come to appointments and they're seeing that their sibling is dealing with X, Y, and Z. So it does become this entire family dynamic and diagnosis almost. And you see more involvement than just the patient you're treating. Yeah. And it's interesting because there is research on pain being something we learn from our caregivers and something we express based on what we have learned in our communities. So yeah, involving the family can be very revealing. And at the end of the day, when you hit those really challenging crossroads where you want that buy-in, it's not working. I often fall back on the conversation of, again, what have you tried and how has it gone? I'm here to support you. I'm here to offer additional strategies. They may not all work, and that's okay. We're trying to find what works best and the combination of things that works best. But what have you tried and what has not been working? And coming back to that conversation, because sometimes caregivers love their children. They want them to be better. They want them to be healthy. They want them to participate as fully as they can in this life. But they don't always see that some of the ways that they have been addressing pain in the past have not been effective. Things like telling children to toughen up rub some dirt in it, those kinds of things are not helpful when your child is already working really hard to get through the school day and is in pain or is working really hard to participate in activities and in pain, is trying to take care of themselves and is in a lot of pain. So it can be a bigger conversation, but finding the values can definitely put you in the right direction. Well, I think reminding us again of that, coming back to their ultimate goals what they want to get back to, what has worked, what hasn't worked, and moving forward with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to earn any fans with the don't rub dirt in it. Because <laughs> 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 they do. Parents love their kids. Guardians love their kids. Caregivers love their kids. And finding what is in the middle and what is going to make both parties the happiest is, is a great goal. Well, Alyssa, this has been a great conversation, and we really appreciate this. And Also, thank you for presenting at ASHT. And for those of our listeners who have not had a chance to listen to it, go listen to it on demand. Everything is up on the platform that they're using. So it's available to listen to multiple times too. And we really appreciate you 
joining us for this conversation. I've learned some valuable tips and tricks to try with my patients and I'm sure Steph has as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thank you both. It's my favorite thing to talk about. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. When subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit asht.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast. Hands in Motion.